please open in your copy of the scriptures to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. As I was considering not only this text, but life in general as a Christian, I have to ask the question, and I'm sure you've contemplated it yourself, as to why is sin so enticing? What makes us actually want to sin? Now, I find it interesting that when I see other people delve into sin, I shake my head and, and think to myself, well, didn't you know better? But when faced with the same temptation, somehow it's just as enticing for me as it would be for you. What makes sin so enticing? Well, I listed three reasons why sin is so enjoyable. Maybe you can add to the list, but for this morning, I just want to mention three and, and explain the third one. And the first one is this one. Why is sin so enjoyable? Well, number one, because we prefer immediate pleasure even if it is temporary. We want pleasure now. We, we do not want delayed pleasure. We, we want it now. Even when we realize that it's going to be very short-lived pleasure. That's our tendency. A young and old, we like to be pleased now. We don't want to wait. And if that temptation, if that sin entices and pleases me now, we're willing to take it now. Secondly, sin is enjoyable because we like to be in control. Would you agree? We like to be in control. Uh, let me give this example. Maybe uh, as a parent or maybe a grandparent, uh, you had a little child in your arms and you said, give me a hug. And that little boy says, no. Oh, give me a kiss. And that little girl says, no, and begins to run away. And so we, we say, well, don't give me a kiss. Don't give me a hug. And what does that child almost every time do? That child runs to you and gives you a kiss and a hug. Why? Because the child wants to be in control. The child does not want to be rejected. And as adults, we do the same thing. We want to be in control, and we do not like it when people tell us, don't do this and don't do that, even if that person is God. We don't want God telling us what to do. I do believe that much of what we see as the progressive movement politically has to do with this very idea. People do not want to be told what is right and what is wrong, what they can do, what they cannot do. But here's a third reason, and I think it's the major reason as to why sin is so enjoyable. Sin is enjoyable because it resonates with our flesh. It resonates with what our bodies desire. The body, as you well know, is very sensual. It feels. And the body has the ability of sensory. We can feel things. Your skin is designed to feel uh, your body has appetites and desires um, which want to be satisfied. We have cravings, and those cravings demand to be satisfied. Uh, the flesh wants to constantly be pleased, constantly uh, be comfortable, constantly be reassured and acknowledged. That's true of every single one of us here. 
Why would you say, did Adam sin even though he had no sin nature? Unlike us, Adam had no sin nature and yet he sinned. Why? Because he had a body. He had flesh. And that flesh has desires and appetites that want to come alive. Desires that want to have experience. Cravings that wanted to be gratified and pleased. He had, as you well know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam had very natural cravings that were very good. Created in him by God himself. For example, uh, Adam wanted a mate, like all the other creatures in creation. That's natural and good. Adam wanted food that tasted good on his tongue. Adam wanted to breathe in fresh air. He wanted to fill his lungs with oxygen. He wanted warmth when it was chilly, and he wanted shade when it was too hot. But in looking for his flesh, his cravings to be satisfied, Adam accepted what was forbidden. He attempted to satisfy his natural healthy cravings in a very natural and healthy way. He saw a fruit that was appetizing and very naturally he wanted to eat it. However, Adam's sin was that he tried to satisfy his cravings in a way that was forbidden. He tried to satisfy his God-given natural cravings in a way that God had said, do not do this. And as a result, Adam plunged humankind into sin. Theologically, we call this original sin. Because of Adam now, because of this original sin, we are all sinners. Adam was the federal head of humankind, of mankind. As the federal head, he is our representative. And so the way that Adam goes, we go. Adam, when he sinned, suddenly he now had a sin nature. And passed down through Adam into all of us is a sin nature, an appetite for sin, a craving for sin, a longing to be satisfied, even if it involves sin. Our flesh has these appetites. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 describes us this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That means that we are born depraved. Depraved means we're spiritually dead. It means that we have an appetite for sin. We crave sin. We find sin enjoyable. It doesn't mean that we are as sinful as we can possibly be, but we are certainly sinful. And of course, we all read along with Gabe from Romans chapter 3, and we saw the depth of our depravity. Can you admit that it's hard to believe what Romans 3 says? Not one is good. And we think, well, I tend to think a little differently about myself. At least sometimes. And yet that's exactly how the scriptures define and explain to us what we are outside of Jesus Christ's redeeming work. 
completely lost. That's exactly how God sees us, not because he's got blurred vision, but because that's exactly what we are. God sees us correctly. We don't see ourselves correctly. Temptation always speaks our language. If that temptation is not speaking your language, it's not tempting. But you very well know what is enticing to you. Certainly, the devil knows what's enticing to you. Maybe some people know what's enticing to you. And that's what becomes tempting. But temptation always speaks our language. And though now in Christ we are indeed a new creation, we are no longer who we used to be. We now in Christ have a new nature. Still, that new nature is housed by this old flesh. This body that has all the same appetites and cravings it used to before Christ in me. And as a result, there's this constant mixture, a struggle between what my flesh wants and what my soul wants. What my body wants and what God wants of me. And of course it is this fallen flesh that makes sin so pleasurable, so desirable. That's why, my friends, in heaven, we are going to have new bodies. Because there will be no sin in heaven. The Apostle Paul describes this battle we're talking about in Romans chapter 7. And if you read through Romans chapter 7, it almost sounds like a riddle. You have to read it slowly and carefully in order to comprehend what the Apostle Paul is saying. I'm not going to break down all those verses on the second half of chapter 7, but I am going to address a few of them. It talks about a battle between your flesh and your new nature. Now some of you may be reading from the New International Version, and unfortunately the New International Version takes some liberty in uh, translating one particular word from the Greek. The word is S-A-R-X, sarx. And the word sarx means flesh, flesh, human flesh. But unfortunately the NIV translates it nature, new nature, or old nature. And I want to be clear here. We do not have two natures as Christians. We're not half good and half evil. No, we are in Christ one new person, new nature. However, that new nature is housed in this old flesh. Let me make another point. Some would suggest then, well, you're being very Gnostic, Pastor Paul. And what the Gnostics would say is that the flesh is evil, you have to get rid of the flesh and only spend time in the spiritual. I'm not saying that at all. Whereas our souls are new, the spiritual part of us is new, the flesh is old, but don't get rid of the flesh. Don't ignore the flesh. Master the flesh. And that is very hard to do, correct? Every time we sin, we are saying... I was unable to master the flesh. It is very hard to set aside that old flesh with all its appetites, with all its desires. And there we have that continuous mixture in the Christian life of mind over soul. What my body craves versus what my soul demands and wants. 
And so look at me with me at Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. Romans 7 verse 15. The Apostle Paul is very vulnerably speaking about himself, but he knows that in speaking about himself, he's speaking about all of us. And I think you can identify very well with what he says here. Verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does that resonate with your experience? I know this is wrong, but I know this is what I want. I know this is sinful, but I also know that this is very, very enticing. I know I ought not to. I hate it, and yet I love it. And there's this struggle within yourself between your flesh and your soul. The Apostle Paul describes it here as what he hates and what he loves. He does what he hates and what he does love, he doesn't do. Look at verses 18 and 19. Right there in the middle of verse 18, he writes, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar? Look at his conclusion, verse 24. This is his conclusion, therefore, of himself. This is not what God thinks of him. This is his own assessment of himself, understanding that he's living this duplicit life too often. He says one thing and lives another. He desires this, but he does that. He is this, but he acts that way. He says, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. He realizes the depth of his sin and he's broken over it. He calls himself wretched because he is living, he is doing those things that does not correspond with who he is in Christ. But look at verse 25. Right there at the end of the chapter. He writes, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's kind of ironic that at the end of this discussion, he says, thanks be to God. For what? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. What is he thankful for? He just described himself as a wretched man, as a duplicit person who is living in a way that he ought not to. Now, He's not doing this constantly. If you know the life of the apostle, you know that he was truly pursuing the things of God. He was truly pursuing a life committed, devoted to Jesus Christ. However, he was not faultless. He was a sinner. And that sin troubled him deeply. That's a good sign. And so he concludes, I am wretched. But he also concludes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, how is it that he could be thankful? Well, I'm going to give you four reasons 
as to why he was thankful and why we ought to be thankful as well, even as we suffer through this daily experience of struggling between what I know God wants of me, of who I really am, versus the sin that so entraps me. Here's the first reason why Paul is able to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ. He is saying, I am thankful to God through Jesus Christ, because outside of Jesus Christ, the most pious life, the most religious and righteous life, if you will, outside of Jesus Christ, it is worthless. I've met many a good people in my life. I met many of a generous, pious people. Unbelievers who make Christians look like the worst of sinners. And yet, outside of Jesus Christ, all that goodness, all that piety is worthless. Those are hard words for many people to accept. In fact, outside of Jesus Christ, all that goodness will not change their destiny at all. At all. Again, those are very bothersome words for many people. In fact, many people take great exception to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. They say, you mean to say that if I don't believe in your Jesus, no matter how good I am, I'm going to hell? And the answer is yes. Uh, Some years ago, I used to do a presentation in a religion class in a public high school. Once a year for a few years I was invited to speak to mostly a Jewish classroom. And um, some kids were nice kids and some were not. But they were all realizing of how exclusive Jesus Christ is and they could not accept that. And every year someone would raise their hand and ask, so you mean to say that if Adolf Hitler believed in Christ in the last moments of his life and gave his life to Christ that he's going to heaven and I'm not? And you know the answer to that. The answer is yes. Is that fair? No. But it's not fair for me to go to heaven either. You see, if God were to be fair, none of us would enter heaven. Not only not Adolf Hitler, but neither would I and neither would you. You see, grace is not fair. Grace is that God gives to me and any other sinner what we don't deserve. And he does it through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, these are not my words. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And then he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father but by me. You see, Jesus Christ himself made this absolutely clear. Now, if Jesus Christ is not speaking the truth here, then he is a liar. He's a pompous liar. So either Jesus Christ is speaking the truth or he's a liar. And if he's a liar, then we should dismiss everything he said. Or if he's speaking the truth, then we best listen to this and everything else he said. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Likewise, the disciples were preaching. And Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, the the promise of eternity in the presence of God is extremely exclusive. It's reduced to faith in one person alone, in God, Jesus Christ. And I can understand why so many would balk against it. And yet that's exactly the gospel message. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And so, look, as we struggle with our own sin, we can begin there and say, I thank God through Jesus Christ, because through Christ I have redemption and forgiveness and a means of overcoming my sin and its penalty. Making it possible not only for me to be a new person, but for me to be a forgiven, redeemed person. Amen. But there's another reason why we should be able to say, even in the midst of our struggles against sin, against ourselves, another reason why we can say, I thank God through Jesus Christ. The second reason is this. I thank God through Jesus Christ that my sin actually troubles me. My sin bothers me. There used to be a time in which it did not. But now it does. Now, the, the, the fact that I'm troubled by my sin does not mean that I am everything that I ought to be. But it does mean that I am no longer who I used to be. And for that I could thank God. My sin actually makes me feel guilty. My friends, this is a good thing. If the word of God guilts you, praise the Lord. Say, I thank the, my Father, the Lord our God, through Jesus Christ, that I feel guilty about sin. Not too long ago, somebody told me, you know why I don't go to your church, Pastor Paul? Because you make me feel guilty. It wasn't me making you feel guilty, I told them. It was just the word of God. If the word of God stings you, that's a good thing. It's like a toothache. Nobody wants a toothache, right? But if you have a toothache, it's telling you, it's an alarm system saying, get to the dentist. That tooth is about to fall out. Do something quickly. This is danger, danger, danger. And when the Lord gives you a spiritual toothache that gets you right here in the heart, that makes you lose sleep, then it is a good thing. It is a good thing because you're no longer who you used to be. Remember those days when something that was just natural and acceptable didn't disturb you, didn't bother you. Well, I praise God that now my sin weighs on my conscience. I hope you can say likewise. It troubles me that I would then venture into a realm of doing something that says that I am becoming that person all over again. And so I'm plagued with this guilt. Didn't God transform me? So why am I going back to that? Look at what Paul writes in verse 17. 
He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I am, in other words, reverting to be what I no longer am. That's not me. That's just the sin in this flesh. This indwelling sin that makes me become who I used to be. A um, bothered spirit over your sin is a mark of a person who is in Christ. It's not the only mark, it's not the absolute mark, but it is a mark of a person who was in Christ. I'll use Lot as an example. Lot from the Old Testament. Now, if you know anything about Lot, you know that he was not an exemplary man. No parent says, son, I want you to grow up and be like Lot. You know, we name our children all kinds of Old Testament names. You know, we have Noah, we have Seth, we, we have Benjamin, we have David, Abraham. Uh, notice that nobody ever names their child Cain or Lot. All right? And yet what we see in the scriptures is that Lot was a righteous man. When I saw that in Hebrews chapter 11... That Lot was a man of faith. I was pretty surprised. Lot? And then in 2 Peter chapter 2, we see that Lot was troubled by the sin that surrounded him. He was uncomfortable in the midst of sin. Marking that God was doing something in his life. That he was no longer comfortable with what he used to be and now it bothers him and so Lot could say I thank the Lord God that through the Messiah the sin that was so common to me now bothers me it troubles me there's now a hatred for my sin yes there's still an attraction maybe even a love for that sin but at the same time there's a hate for that sin which says I want to get away from it oh Lord how I want to get away from it I just can't seem to get away from it help me Lord to get away from it I want to thank the Lord that you hate your sin pray to the Lord that you'll hate it even more here's number three I thank God through Jesus Christ that though I'm in a battle, I am not beaten. Though I am in this constant battle, I am not overwhelmed. I am not destroyed. I am not conquered. I am not beaten. Charles Spurgeon writes on this very verse, and he notes these words. He says, I am thankful that though I am in the conflict, I am not conquered. And that is because the enemy, the devil himself, is still alive. But he has been dethroned. He's still alive and he rages, but he does not reign over me. My friends, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, is still very much alive. He's still very much well. Eventually he will not be, but until then, he is. He is. And it's his desire to once again assume a position of power in your life. 
Now, there are certain practices, certain ways of think, thinking, certain things that you do that may very well be opening the door for him to get more power in your life, to get more traction in your soul. Guard yourself against that. And do not think that for a moment you can trust him. Do not think that he is going to be kind and generous to you this once. He's not. You give him an opportunity and he will take it. Open the door a crack and he'll push it open all the way. Do not allow him to get a grip over your soul, over your life. It can be very frightening when we consider what the devil is willing to do. What he's able to do. At times, I do think that, that we feel like the Ukrainian army going up against the mighty Russian army. Remember about eight weeks ago? Personally, I thought it was going to be a three-day defeat of the Ukrainians. It's going to be over in no time. Right? Can you imagine being a Ukrainian military officer or, or just in the military and seeing all those tanks considering all those missiles, considering all that power from the nation next door coming at you, the fear that must have been in these men. Sometimes that's what it feels like when we consider the, the ability of the devil and the willingness of the devil, the scheming of the devil. And I look and I see that the Ukrainians are doing pretty well. Not every battle has been a victory, but they are winning. And let me remind you that in Christ, that can be your story too. Yours is the victory. You do have within you, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit in you, the ability to fight. And as Spurgeon says, we have no intentions of turning back. No intentions of turning back. Why? Because in Christ, we are in the battle, but we are not conquered. So keep fighting. Keep fighting. Here's number four. I thank God through Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the eventual victory. It's guaranteed. Victory is guaranteed. Now, it is not an immediate victory. It is an eventual victory. But God will rescue you. But fight on. Keep fighting against your flesh. Don't fight against other people's flesh. <laughs> fight against your own flesh. That's battle enough. Keep fighting. Consider the nature of this fight. It is the world and the world's ways against a person, a child of God. It is the world and everything it's got against you. And that can be rather intimidating. But let me remind you that not even this world, not even the principles of the power of the air, not even those things that are evil, cannot overcome the one who is in Christ. None of it can. Oh, you do have to fight, you do have to sweat. You may get injured. It is indeed a battle. But ultimate, eventual victory is yours. Let me remind you with the words of Jesus Christ. 
If these words don't comfort you, nothing will. John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you. This is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you that in me you may have what? Peace. You may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We can all attest to that. But take heart, he writes. I have overcome the world. John wrote these words to remind us that in Christ, he has overcome the world. Fight on. The victory is yours. Fight on. But just as the conflict is certain, there will be a battle. Maybe it's waging in you right now. And if it doesn't happen today, it will tomorrow. If not on Monday, I assure you Tuesday, there will be something. Keep in mind that whereas the conflict is certain, the victory is certain as well. It is definite. It's not possible. It's not even probable. It is definite for those who are in Christ. Victory is guaranteed. And it's not guaranteed because there's a handshake between you and God. It's not guaranteed because somebody signed a a contract. No, it's guaranteed because of the everlasting covenant that God has made with you. Thus, you can say, I am born anew. I'm born again. He has made an everlasting covenant with you, which guarantees you victory. The very one, Jesus Christ, who became a sacrifice on your behalf, will not let what he did at the cross go to waste. The atonement that Christ performed for you will not be wasted. He will not let his life work be ignored. It will eventually produce victory because Christ alone is able to keep what he has committed to and what has been committed to him. He can keep you and he will. In John chapter 10 verse 28, Jesus Christ said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that good news? You will be the victor. You will be. But keep fighting. Keep fighting. Don't make a shipwreck out of your faith. And lastly, number five. I thank God through Jesus Christ. Not only that victory is certain, but that victory is near. Victory is near. I think most of you would agree that life is short, right? I hear it all the time. Life is short. I can't believe how fast life has gone. I remember just the other day, I was a young teenager, hoping to one day be able to preach the gospel. Those days have flown by, and they are short. Well, if life is short, then victory is near. The battle is only for a time. There will be a day, there will be a time, and because life is short, it will be soon, in which you will not have to wage war against your flesh anymore. 
there will be a time soon in which you will not have to worry or hang your head in shame before God in prayer because of your sins. You will not have to question yourself or question your devotion or your salvation in God. Uh, There is coming a time in which you will not have to say, Lord, I'm sorry again. Because in heaven, there will be nothing to be sorry for. You see, in heaven, there's no sin. And where there is no sin, there are no tears. There will be nothing to fight over or against in sin, in in heaven. Namely, sin. It's coming. It's close. You know, this world is filled with evil. No question about it. Um, To make mention once again of this war between Ukraine and and Russia. What's amazing is that in that part of the world, in Europe in particular, there has been over the last couple of decades a question as to whether or not evil exists. It has become the philosophy of that part of the world, and it is spreading into our world as well, into our American borders, into our culture, the question as to whether or not evil exists. And the argument being that the idea of sin and the idea of evil are religious constructs. In other words, you religious people invented the idea of evil. Everything is neutral. Evil doesn't exist. And it only becomes sinful because you said it's sinful. But in reality, it's not. But now with the invasion of Russia into the Ukraine and all these people being massacred, cities just being leveled, all these people dying for no real reason, the conclusion is evil exists. Oh, that they had just read the scriptures. Now they conclude, yes, evil exists. You know, about this hour a week ago, there were people in a congregation in California, a Taiwanese congregation, and in came a gunman. And he killed at least one person. Evil exists. And about the same hour a week ago, just north of us, in Buffalo, there was a young racist individual who killed anywhere from 10 to 13 people just out of hate. Evil exists. There was a struggle between the, what was reality and the flesh in these people. And they gave in to the flesh. But you see, for them it was almost impossible for them to say no because they did not have Christ in them. All they had was their fallen nature and their flesh. We, though, have a new nature. We are made new with a new propensity, new ability, a new passions in the soul. However, all this is housed in this fleshly body that craves sin And we, my friends, can fight against it. But understand that soon, and very soon, all this will come to a screeching halt because we will be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. There will be no sin 
in heaven. There will be no desire for sin in heaven. There will be no inkling for sin in heaven. And therefore there will be none of this destruction or evil in heaven. In Jesus Christ, the soul is renewed so that a new thinking emanates. However, our body still holds to those old cravings. A new mind, new soul, but an old body. And when we get to heaven, understand this, it's not going to be a truce. Well, let's just call it even. No, it's going to be total and final victory for Christ and for his people. Victory's coming. Fight on, battle on, wage war against indwelling sin. But understand this, eventually that war is going to cease. And it will be in the presence of God forever and ever. You will fight no more. Until then, keep fighting against your sin. Knowing that what you do, how you think, how you live, will have implications for the, for the outcome of your life. So fight. Fight hard. Fight on your knees. Fight with the scriptures. Fight with accountability. Fight. And wait for the Lord to bring that final and ultimate victory. Let me pray with you. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful that you give to us a new nature that can hate our sin, that can run from sin. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to endure the cravings of our flesh. Give us wisdom enough to flee those cravings. Give us strength enough to be able to withstand the temptations that surround us. And Lord, we pray for your victory now as we wait for that ultimate day in which final victory will be given to us. We pray, Lord, in your goodness that we would succeed and give you glory through how we live. In your name we pray. Amen. It's a good message, isn't it?